our Lord God speaks to us here with great compassion and love for his people and great concern for them. Uh, Let us hear the word of God. Hebrews chapter 10. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he, Christ, was coming into the world, he said, You did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. After he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now awaiting, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says, I will put my hearts on their, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. For if we deliberately go on sinning, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, 
but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy, based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. And at other times, you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed but those who have faith and are saved I invite you now to turn to the Old Testament to Psalm 40 and I will read the first eight verses of God's word Psalm 40 I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned for me, turned to me, and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit, out of the muddy clay, and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. How happy is anyone who has put his trust in the Lord and has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies. Lord my God, you have done many things. Your wondrous work and your plans for us. Who can compare with you? If I were to report and speak of them, they are more than can be told. You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. You do not ask for a whole burnt offering or a sin offering. Then I said, See, I have come. In the scroll it is written about me. I delight to do your will, my God. 
and your instruction is deep within me. Let us pray. Our Lord and gracious Heavenly Father, we delight in all that you have done for us through Christ. And we pray, Lord, that this morning your spirit would be pleased to open our eyes to behold the glory of your love and mercy and grace revealed in the body of Christ that was sacrificed for us. In the person of Christ, in his glory, who died that we might live. And in your grace given to us through the spirit that we might faithfully walk before you all the days of this life and enter face to face into your presence. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. (coughs) My message this morning is on Psalm 40, verses 1 through 8. And it is entitled, The New Creation Work of God's Servant King. The first 41 psalms, all of them from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41, you may have noticed in your Bible, or maybe it's something you've never noticed, that there's a title at the very beginning that says Book 1. And the 150 psalms were actually divided, are divided in our Bibles into five books. And Psalm 1 through 41 are the first book. And of these 41 psalms, all but four of them have a title that identifies King David as the prophet who wrote these portions of God's word. And of these 41 psalms, only five have titles that tell us about the circumstances of the psalm, giving us a clue to when they were written. It is often assumed that there is no purpose to the order in which the psalms occur and that it really wouldn't matter if we were to mix them up and turn them around and put them in a different order or if we just open our Bible and read them in a different order. But that does not appear to be true. In his recent book entitled The Flow of the Psalms by O. Palmer Robertson, he has demonstrated that the, the psalms are very intentionally placed in the order in which they occur. And this is very noticeable in the final psalms of the first book. All of which are prayers from a person who is suffering. And Psalms 34 through 37 are all prayers from someone who is innocent of sin and crime and yet is suffering. And Psalms 38 through 41 are all prayers of a person who is suffering and is confessing his sin, which has contributed to his suffering. And as we look closer at the final eight Psalms in this book, we notice that there are even closer ties between them. There have been no statements of thanksgiving to God for answered prayer and for deliverance since Psalm 34 all the way from 34 up to where we are at now in Psalm 40, there are no prayers of thanksgiving for deliverance. Psalm 34, verses 4 and 6 say this, I sought the Lord and He answered me and rescued me from all my fears. 
this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. But here are these Psalms one after another that speak of troubles and suffering and discouragement and fear and despair. And we go on and on through each of them, and we find no words of God's deliverance. The psalmist is waiting. He is crying out, Lord, help me. And yet the Lord sees fit to wait and wait. And he continues to cry out to the Lord for the help he needs. And the darkness becomes even deeper in Psalms 38 and 39. Those two Psalms did not include any promises that God is good to all who trust in Him. Instead, they were full of statements of agony. And the highest they rose was to cry out to God for help. God, help me. And Psalm 39 concluded this downward spiral by bringing us down with David to the very depths of desperation and despair that he felt. Now we do not know if David placed the Psalms in the order they are in or if another prophet of God did so, but it appears very clear that not only the message of each Psalm, but even the order of the Psalms appears to be inspired by God. Because reading these Psalms and praying them in this order appears to open a door for God to guide each of us to face our own sin and our own suffering and our own despair and all the aspects that that involves and to learn to wait on God and to learn to prove our trust in God through that long, dark night of waiting. But now... But now, with Psalm 40 and verses 1 through 3, God brings his people out of the darkness and into the glorious light of spiritual day and rejoicing. As David expresses in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 40, his exultant thanksgiving for God's deliverance. David had prayed in Psalm 39, verse 7, the very center and heart of that psalm. Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. And now David takes up these very same words again as he thanks and praises God in Psalm 40, verse 1, saying, I waited patiently for the Lord. David had waited faithfully for the Lord to rescue him from his suffering and distress. But his waiting may not have been as patiently as our English versions Indicate The Hebrew simply indicates that he waited constantly. He waited continually. But whether he waited confidently or still in anxiety, is, it is certain that he waited in faithfulness to the Lord. He never gave up on the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. Notice how David had also prayed in Psalm 39 and verse 12. Hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help. And now David takes up these very words in Psalm 40 and verse 1 when he proclaims, He turned to me and heard my cry for help. David goes on to say in verse 2, He brought me up from a desolate pit, out of the miry clay, 
and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. And most certainly he is not talking about a physical pit and a physical rock. He is talking about his experiences in his heart, in his soul. I don't know if Charles Gabriel had Psalm 40 and verse 2 in mind when he wrote the hymn, He Lifted Me, in 1905, but it is entirely possible. The first stanza and chorus say, In loving kindness, Jesus came, my soul in mercy to reclaim, and from the depths of sin and shame, through grace, He lifted me. From sinking sand, He lifted me. With tender hand, he lifted me from shades of night to plains of light. Oh, praise his name. He lifted me. The solid rock that God set David's feet upon was none other than God himself. As David made clear in Psalm 18, verses 1 to 2, when he said, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Finally, in verse 3, David thanks God for his deliverance by saying, he put a new song in my mouth. David is going around singing praise to God. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. The new song that God put in his mouth is this song of praise and thanksgiving to God for answering his prayer and rescuing him from affliction. The older previous song or psalm was his prayer of lament and earnest pleas to God for help, found especially in Psalms 38 and 39. Psalm 38 began, Lord, do not punish me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has pressed down on me. And Psalm 38 ended, Lord, do not abandon me. My God, do not be far from me. Hurry to help me, my Lord, my salvation. In Psalm 39, verse 8, he cried out, Rescue me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the taunt of fools. And he ended 39, Psalm 39, with a plea of desperation. Turn your angry gaze from me so that I may be cheered up before I die and am gone. Do Christians ever feel like this? Do Christians ever pray like this? I don't know about you, but I know I do. And David did. And now God has filled David's mouth with words of praise and thanksgiving for his wonderful deliverance. And he David testifies that many will see the wonderful works that God did for him. And from that, they will learn to trust in the Lord. And David's example exhorts us to add our testimonies of God's goodness to those of David. So that those around us may also learn of God's goodness. That they may see our faith in God in the midst of the darkness our trust in Him, our certainty in Him, and that they too may learn to trust God in the darkness. Next, in verses 4 and 5, David expresses his exuberant 
testimony to God's goodness. In verse 4, David shares his personal experience of the goodness of God. And he urges others to find it true for themselves too. He says, how happy is anyone who has put his trust in the Lord and has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies. Everyone is faced in this life with a decision. Will you put your trust in God and follow Him through times good and bad? Or will you put your trust in those who boast that they know better than what God's Word says? And will you follow the lie that the people of this world know better than God does? David can testify that he knows by experience that God's Word and God's promises are true. And that great rejoicing, though they may not be here now, they will come to the one who trusts in God and seeks to walk in obedience to him. David goes on to testify in verse 5, Lord my God, you have done many things. Your wondrous works and your plans for us, none can compare with you. If I were to report and speak of them, they are more than can be told. They are more than can be counted. David mentions that God has done so many wondrous works, even miraculous things for his people, and he has so many wondrous plans for or thoughts towards his people that if David tried to count them all up, they would be more than can be counted. The Bible is full of God's miraculous deliverances and wonderful care for his people. And while we each ought to read books that help us to understand the Bible better, we also need to read books that tell the stories of the lives of the saints, especially missionary biographies. Recently, I've been reading a book entitled Walking Upright on Foreign Soil. It brought tears to my eyes and refreshment to my soul to hear of God's amazing answers to prayer and his wonderful care of his people. And God's care for his people did not end with the close of the Bible. And God's care for his people was not limited to missionaries. Every one of us ought to record in a book the wonderful things that God does for us and the wonderful answers to prayer that God gives to us. I love to tell the story of how God took care of me when I was driving back to western New York where I was an associate pastor after going to my childhood home in Pennsylvania for Christmas in the late 1980s. And we didn't have cell phones back in those days, and we didn't have the internet back in those days. Yes, I know, I lived in the dark ages. <laughs> I tried to find weather forecasts for New York when I was in Pennsylvania. I tried to find them on the TV. And then I listened to the radio in my car the whole time I was driving up there trying to find local stations because I was concerned about the weather in New York. And the weather was beautiful as I drove up through middle Pennsylvania and entered into New York. It was just gorgeous out. And the radio stations made no mention of snow. But as soon as I turned off I-390 and headed due west on a two-lane road named 20A, I noticed that there was packed snow on the road. And then it started snowing, lightly at first, but then heavier and heavier. And soon I found myself in a bonafide New York blizzard. And it got to the point where I could not see past the front of the car. 
Now, unlike true New Yorkers who will just keep driving through a blizzard expecting to come out the other side, I stopped the car in the middle of the road, right in my lane. I stopped and I did not move. I couldn't see what was in front of me. And I had no idea what I was going to do. And at that point, uh, what I did was I simply prayed and I said, Lord, if you will help me find somehow find a house along this road, I will pull in the driveway and I will go knock on the door and I will ask them if I can spend the night there. And that was my prayer. And I opened my eyes and almost immediately I saw what looked like a yellow flashing light about maybe 40 feet in front of me. And I slowly drove my car up to it and stopped, and there was a New York snowplow. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever seen a New York snowplow, but they're about 20 feet high, and the blade on the front is about 10 feet high. And this snowplow had evidently been there when I stopped, and the reason he had stopped and now turned on his flashing lights was because there was a car off the right side of the road in the ditch. And he stopped to pick up his plow and to drive in front of it and put his plow back down because these plows are absolutely huge. And I followed that guy and I stuck right on his tail. I had a hard time keeping up with him. He was going so fast, I don't know how he could see the road, but I could see him, I could see his lights, and I stayed stuck to his tail for a long time until we drove out of the blizzard and it stopped snowing and the road became dry and there was no snow on it. That was the Lord's good care for me. I was so happy. Because I had no idea what I was going to do. <laughs> the Lord is incredibly good to his children. Returning to our text, let us notice that in the center of verse 5, David gives the reason why it is true that God's wonderful works and thoughts and plans towards his people are so numerous. And the reason they are God's good acts are so numerous is found in the nature of God himself. David states, none can compare with you. God is so good. He is so great. He is so glorious. He is so caring for his people that no one else even comes close to him. He is a perfect father, a perfect husband, a perfect friend. We can always trust in him and wait expectantly for him to help us. Now the lives of believers remind us that some of our sufferings in this life may continue all the way through our life on earth. Some of our sufferings may not completely be removed until that day when God comes to take us to dwell with Him in His glorious presence in heaven. But it is certain that all our sufferings will end at our death and that perfect joy will be the Christians in the day when we see God's face. 1 Corinthians 2.9, God tells us of the glories He has prepared for us in heaven. He says, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, goodnesses and gifts that you can't even begin to imagine, God has prepared these things for those who love Him. 
Can you believe God's promises? Can you wait for God to wipe the tears from your eyes? Can you rest your entire life in obedience to God upon what Christ has done for you and what God has promised to you? Times may come in your life when that will be all that you have to rest your heart upon. God's goodness, God's promises, and what He has done for you in Christ. Can you rest your life on that? Finally, in verses 6 through 8, David expresses his entire submission to God's will. David makes two long statements in these three verses, one in verse 6 and one in verses 7 to 8. Each of these two statements speak of the same theme at the beginning and at the end. But they contain a very different but related thought in the middle of them. And this is the same structure that we just observed in verse 5 as well. Now in verse 6, David says to God, You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. You do not ask for a whole burnt offering or a sin offering. Twice he tells us what God is not looking for, and in the middle he tells us what God is looking for. You open my ears to listen, to listen to you. What does he want? He wants obedience from us, not animal sacrifices. He wants our love and obedience. We first need to recognize that there is some hyperbole here. God commanded his people to offer animal sacrifices and offerings to him. But when his people worship God externally, bringing the sacrifices, but without faith, without submission to God, without love, without obedience, without a change of heart, God repeatedly declared to them that their worship was worthless and unacceptable to him and that he detested their offerings. In Isaiah 1.13 and verses 16 to 17, God says, Stop bringing useless Offerings, your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. They were gathering for a holy festival to worship God and they were bringing their iniquities with them. And God says, I can't bear it. He says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Bible commentators go in different directions seeking the background of these comments in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. But if we consider all the themes in these three verses, we see that they very clearly point to 1 Samuel 13 through 16. And during that time in the life of Israel, 
because King Saul disobeyed the Lord, God told Saul he was no longer the rightful king of Israel. God had revoked his kingship and he was removed from office. Now Saul said, no I'm not, I'm staying in office. God says, you're done. You're being replaced. During that time, God sent Samuel to anoint David as the rightful king. And then King Saul, for 12 years, chased Daniel around with an army attempting to kill him. The event that led to Saul's rejection of God was his disobedience to God's command when God told him to take all the sheep, all the goats, all the plunder that he got from the Amalekites and offer it up to the Lord and destroy it. Instead, Saul saved the very best of the sheep and the goats and the cattle and the other animals. And when he was confronted about it by Samuel, first Saul said, well, it wasn't me. It was the, it was the troops, the soldiers. They did that. They, they wanted to offer them as an offering to the Lord. Samuel's response in 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 to 23 was, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as much as in obeying the Lord? Which does the Lord want more? Which does he value more, burnt offerings or obedience? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. You're consorting with false gods when you're rebellion. It's like that. And defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. But wait, Saul was the one God chose. Saul was the one God's people chose. Saul was the one that was the best that humanity had to offer. But the best that humanity had to offer was very bad, wasn't it? What they really needed was the best that God's Spirit could create. The whole of Psalm 40 and verse 6 is, is about God not delighting in or asking for sacrifices and offerings. And the meaning is that what God values more than anything else is heartfelt obedience. More than anything else that we may give to God, more than our money, our service, even our worship, what God desires is obedience that comes from our hearts. Our obedience is the unmistakable mark of our love for God, our trust in God, our entire submission to God. Even more than giving God our money or our service or our worship, it is our obedience, especially when it is costly and sac- it is costly and painful to obey, even as David served the Lord while he fled for 12 years, hiding from Saul. It is our obedience when it is costly to obey that reveals whether we truly love God, truly trust in Him, truly submit to Him. 
David proved his devotion to God when he fled from Saul for 12 years, and he did not strike Saul down in anger. He left that to God in God's timing, in God's wisdom, in God's working. And Jesus proved his entire submission to the Father when he suffered on the cross and took the punishment for all the sins of God's people upon himself. And we prove our love for God when we, when we obey him when it is costly to do so. We prove our love for him. Now we come to the very mysterious statement in the middle of verse 6, which says, You opened my ears to listen. Actually, this translation contains a fair amount of interpretation. The, the phrase literally says, You dug ears for me. You dug ears for me. God dug ears for David. God created David and Saul and you and me with ears. Why did he do that? When he formed us in the womb, God, so to speak, placed his fingers in the sides of our head and formed and created our ear canals and all their intricate parts. Our ears are incredible. They are miraculously able to change the vibration of sound waves into mechanical energy. And then they are able to incredibly create that, change that mechanical energy into chemical energy. And then they are incredibly able to change that chemical energy into electrical energy, which is then sent to the brain. And the brain is able to assemble all of this vast data into sounds that we can hear and we can understand. God gave us ears to listen to what He is saying to us when His Word is read. And to respond with heartfelt obedience. Tragically, Saul refused to listen to God's prophets. He refused to obey God. But David wonderfully responded to God with submission to God's will and with obedience, even when it was very difficult to do so as he, the rightful king, was being pursued and chased by Saul, who sought to kill him. Now, the Jewish fathers translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, because the Jews, many of them were losing the ability to speak and read Hebrew, and they created the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And... In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, the inspired apostle who wrote Hebrews, we don't know for certain who that was, but the writer inspired by God who wrote Hebrews quoted the Septuagint version of this passage in Hebrews 40. And wrote, translating it now into English for us, Hebrews 10.5 says, Therefore as he, that is Jesus Christ, was coming into the world, he said, You did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. 
he basically said that translation by the Septuagint of you dug ears as you prepared a body captures the meaning and is accurate. Now the Septuagint's translation was a bit interpretational, but it was accurate. It changed the word ears to body. You see, God formed us not just with ears. He formed us with an entire physical body, a whole body. And God tells us that these words of David, God's obedient king, were fulfilled by Christ when God brought Jesus into the world. When God's spirit formed the human body of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary with human ears to listen and to obey God and with a human body to offer up in life and in death as a perfect sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now we come to Psalm 40 and verses 7 through 8, which says, Then I said, See, I have come. In the scroll it is written about me. I delight to do your will, my God. And your instruction is deep within me. In what sense did David claim to have come? The answer is that David came as the obedient king who delighted to do the will of God. Saul was king, but he was not obedient to God, and he was removed. And God brought David into his place as the obedient king who came to rule and lead and shepherd God's people. Hebrews chapter 10 And verse 9 ties the beginning and end of these two verses tightly together. It drops out the parenthetical thought in the center, and Hebrews 10.9 re-quotes Hebrews uh, Psalm 40. It re-quotes the verses as, See, I have come to do your will. And just as David came as the king who was obedient to the will of God, So did Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of David's life. He is the one that David's life is prophetic of. And now we come to the parenthetical thought in the center of verses 7 and 8, which says, In the scroll it is written about me. And God confirms for us in Hebrews 10, 7 that this translation of the verse is accurate. The question for us is, where did God write about David? And the answer is 1 Samuel 13, 14. The scroll which records Samuel's words to King Saul. Samuel said to King Saul, The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. And that man with a heart set on obeying God was David. And as a result, 1 Samuel 16 verses 12 through 13 tells us that God commanded Samuel to anoint David as the rightful king. 
it says, Then the Lord said, Anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and poured it on him and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. The book of 1 Samuel was not completed until after David was old and perhaps after David had died. But there is no doubt that the prophet Samuel wrote all these things in a scroll as soon as they took place. The details that it records requires that he did so. And David here gives testimony to what was written down by God's prophet Samuel in God's word. Namely, that God found him to have a heart entirely surrendered to the Lord's will. And that God had appointed him, David, to be the true king of Israel. Even as David fled for his life from Saul for something like 12 years, David knew that God had called him to be the king of God's people. And he knew that one day he would sit upon the throne in Jerusalem. David's words and actions were prophetic of God's final and eternal king of his people, Jesus Christ. And Jesus reversed the direction of Psalm 40. God rejected external sacrifices in favor of heart obedience. Jesus came and with heart obedience to God, he fulfilled God's will by willingly offering himself up on the cross as the complete and perfect sacrifice for all the sins of all who trust in him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before the crucifixion, Jesus prayed, My, my Father, if, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was human. He felt the, the, the pain. He felt the pressure. He, 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 in his humanity, struggled with fear. He was fully human. He faced death on the crucifixion. And he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But he goes on to pray, Yet not as I will, but as you will, my Father. He submitted his humanity to God the Father in perfect obedience. And he prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And Hebrews 10, 14 describes the great salvation accomplished by the work of Christ. It says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. He has perfected forever all those who trust in him. Does that mean that we're sinless now? No, but it means in the sight of God, we are perfect, we are sinless, for all our sins are paid for. And we shall be glorified in perfection when he comes for us. And Hebrews 10, 16 to 17 then quotes from Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 through 34, to explain the effects of God's new covenant upon the heart. He says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days. The Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. This is what Christ did. Those who trust in him 
all our sins and lawful acts are taken away and God will never bring them up. We will never be charged with them. We will never have to bear the punishment for them. And he is writing his law upon our heart. This is the work of the Spirit. And on our mind, he is giving us a love for God's law as his people. Just as David wrote in Psalm 40 and verse 8 that he delighted to do God's will and that God had planted his law deep with him, so too Jesus by his spirit writes God's law upon the hearts of us, his people. Jesus writes a delight to do God's will upon the hearts and into the minds and into the lives of all those who trust in him so that all the world may see the miraculous, transforming work of God within us. God says to believers through Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.3, you show, Paul is writing to the believers in Corinth, you show that you are Christ's letter, delivered by us, not written with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You are giving evidence that the Spirit of God has written in your heart the law of God as you so faithfully seek to obey and honor God. Because our entire submission to God and our delight in doing His will is at the very heart and essence of Christ's new creation work in us. It behooves us by God's grace to perform our worship of God and our service of others in order to please and honor God. Not to be seen or praised by men, but to offer to God our heartfelt love and obedience. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, grant us the grace to wait continually, faithfully, and expectantly for your gracious rescue of us from our suffering and afflictions. Fill our mouths with exultant praise and thanksgiving in the hearing of the people of this world for all your wonderful acts of deliverance and loving care that you have given to us, so that you may receive the glory due your name and that others may also learn to trust in you. Grant us the boldness to share our exuberant testimony of your grace and goodness, your power and mercy, your care and provision, which are at work in our lives. How you are not only delivering us from the unjust afflictions brought upon us by others, but especially how you are rescuing us from a life of sin and from the miseries brought upon us in this world by our sins and from the eternal judgment we deserve for our disobedience and rebellion. Grant us ears that listen to you, that listen to your word and pay attention to your workings in our lives and to the counsel of those around us. Grant us a heartfelt worship of you. Grant us a submission to you, a delight to do your will. Scribe your holy and loving law upon our hearts and in our minds. Write your loving thoughts and your fruit and deeds of service into our lives so that all who see our lives may praise you for making us a new creation in Christ. <clears throat> 
and so that they may desire and delight in their hearts to also be so recreated by your Spirit. For it is in the name of our Savior who delighted to do your will, no matter how incredibly difficult, and offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins that we pray. Amen.